morning. It's good to see each one this morning. Appreciate you being here. I also appreciate the opportunity to fill in while Jim is away, preaching the gospel in another area. And we do have visitors this morning. I'd like to welcome you. Thank you for being here with us today. This morning we're going to be looking at man and his salvation. Oftentimes the question is asked, what must I do to be saved? Well, a lot of times incorrect answers are given. If you study the world of religion, you will study many different beliefs, many different ideas and ways that man has come up with on his own or that he has read somewhere, studied somewhere, someone has told them something or another, and yet it gets passed down as truth when it is not. There are those who claim to be religious, feel they're going to heaven, but yet reject God's word. They may classify it as a good book, parts of it being good, parts of it being inspired maybe, but yet they do not accept it as they should. We're told in Matthew 4, 4, that man shall live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. When we study the Bible, we can study it, we can research it, and we can find that this is truly the word of God. There are those who say, well, you cannot know that the Bible is truly the word of God. It has come down to us through the years. People have had the opportunity to change it, and they have. We know that to be the case. But yet we also know that there is enough early writings that we can use to verify that this is the Word of God. And that being the case, this is the only Word that we go by. Although there are many in the world today who will reject this and go by some other writing, some other belief, some other teacher, some other uh, religious theologian, and yet never see the truth from the Bible. But when we look at man's salvation, what does that involve? We talked this morning in our Bible class about grace and the system of grace, about the gospel, the system of gospel, uh, all being the same. And we find that it is absolutely necessary to follow the gospel in order to be saved. But what really is involved in man's salvation? We look in the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. We see where God created the world. He created the heavens. He created everything. So God in the beginning created all things, even the plan of salvation. Although it is not revealed as the plan of salvation, it is the plan of salvation throughout the Bible. As we mentioned this morning in class, uh, Ephesians, the third chapter, how Paul talked about that uh, in earlier times, it was not revealed as it was at that particular time. But yet, it was there from the beginning. If you have your Bibles, if you will open them to Genesis, the third chapter. We are familiar with the fall in the garden, how that man disobeyed God. And the fact that God, at that point, not only addressed man and his actions, but he also addressed the serpent, basically Satan, and talked about what would happen in the future. God telling the serpent, he said, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy heel, and thou shalt bruise, uh, thou shalt bruise 
thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. That's the first prediction of the coming of the Christ because Christ would be victorious over Satan. When he went to that cross, he conquered death, he defeated Satan. So we see that God, through his love, made a way for man to have eternal salvation. Some people think that when you preach from the Bible about obeying commandments, that you're leaving out the love of God. Not so. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So our love is exemplified by the keeping of the commandments. But yet we also see God's love in the fact that he made it possible for man to be reconciled unto him again. God could have, I guess, just decided, well, that's the end of it. I don't want to deal with man anymore. We don't know that. But we do know that God loved us enough to make it possible for us to have eternal salvation. As John writes in John 3.16, this is one of the... uh, most well-known verses out of the Bible when it says, For God so loved the world. I think those few words, first of all, in that verse are very important for us to understand that God loved us. He loved us enough that He was going to make a way for us to be reconciled unto Him again. Instead of just leaving us uh, hanging or leaving man uh, with no hope at all, we find that John says that God so loved the world that what He gave His only begotten Son... Oftentimes we are very aware of the event that took place at Calvary, but we don't really see the intensity of it. We don't really see the physical part of it that really took place there. Uh, Most of us, and if you watch TV, oftentimes they'll put a disclaimer on the screen about maybe what's coming up is is violent or it's uh, something that you would not want young children to see because it's very graphic. Oftentimes, we are not looking at really the graphic part of the crucifixion, what all took place and how horrible of an event that was. God loved us enough that he would put Christ through that for our salvation. I would not have wanted to be there on one hand. I know a lot of people say, well, I, lo- I would love to have been there with Christ. I would love to, to been there. I don't know if I would have wanted to see that. Now, Brian works in the medical field, and there may be some others that work in the medical field, and you see injuries and things like that all the time. But can you imagine what took place on that cross when they put spikes, not a nail, not, you know, sometimes we, we hear nail and we think of something you might hammer into a two-by-four. No, these were spikes. I could not imagine watching that. And then when that cross was dropped into the ground, just the, the force of that hitting and our, our Lord up on that cross and the pain that he suffered, it would not be a pretty sight. But yet God made that plan possible for us because he loved us. So without God, there is no eternal salvation whatsoever. There are those who are uh, what may be considered agnostic. They, they say, well, there's not enough proof to say whether God exists or not. Now, the atheists will say there is no God. And then there are those out in the world today who say, well, I'm not sure if God exists or not. Well, I always wonder, what do they base their eternal future on? I mean, they know they're not going to live forever physically. So where is their mind for eternity? Well, we know that God has provided a way for us. There was a problem that Peter was dealing with, uh, as we read in 2 Peter 3, 9. There were those that were saying, well, because Christ has not come, he's never coming. And God had made a promise that Christ would come. Well, that, 
It hasn't happened yet, so it's not going to happen. And Peter said, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but His long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why did God do that if He did not love us? God commands us to come to repentance because He knows it is good for us. It is through His love that He lets us know these things. How often have we warned people of things because we cared for them? We did not want them to suffer injury or inconvenience or whatever. We warned people of things like that. Well, God has warned us to repent. When He says that all people need to come to repentance, that is for all people's good. When He tells us to repent, that is for our own good. It's not something God just wanted to do to have something to do. It's not God just talking to hear Himself talk. As my mother would always say, I didn't tell you that just to hear myself talk. There was something behind it. There was a purpose behind it. So God wants us to be saved. Therefore, he commands us to repent. And as Peter says here, God's not willing that any should perish. There are those who have the idea that God is just sitting up there waiting for people to make a mistake so he can punish them. That's not the God I read about in the Bible. But he is also not the God that some people think that he is where he's not going to judge any sinful act and that he's just going to forget about it. No, God wants us to be with him in heaven for eternity and therefore he lets us know what we need to do. Also in Acts 17, 30 and 31 where it talks about God wanting people to repent. At the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because there's going to be a day of judgment. He says, given us warning that we need to listen to him, that because of his love, he has given us this opportunity, and that we should follow, we should heed the warning. And the Bible is full of warnings. And it's because of that day that he hath appointed for judgment that he is warning us about, giving us plenty of opportunity. There will be those that reach judgment day, and we don't really know how that's going to happen as far as people, whether they're going to get to say anything or not. We don't know those things. But there are going to be some who may feel I didn't have a chance. Well, that's not true, especially in this country. This is a country that has some type of religious building, it seems like, on about every corner. I mean, we have three or four lined up in a row right here. So for people to say, I didn't know about God, I didn't know about religion, that's not the truth because they have had the opportunity. So we see the fact that God loves us enough that he has warned us, that he has made us, a plan to be saved, and it is up to us to follow it. Another thing we want to look at when we deal with man's salvation, man and his salvation, is the fact of Jesus Christ and what he has done. There are those who accept God, but they do not accept Christ. There are those who accept part of the Bible, but they do not accept all of it. But when we look at the fact that Jesus Christ was that sacrificial lamb, the fact that he gave his own life, ought to say something to us. I'm sure if a lot of people would have seen the crucifixion, as some did, a lot of people did, but yet they still didn't believe, there, that was such an event that would change the minds of people in the fact of them accepting uh, Christ as a son of God, as a Roman soldier did. But think about what Christ gave up to come to this earth. Jesus was in heaven. He gave up a lot for us to come, uh, gave up a lot to come to this earth for us. There are those who say that Jesus Christ did not exist until he was born physically. Of course, the Bible teaches otherwise. John 1, 1, for instance. Uh, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You go to verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, speaking of Christ. But also, there are other verses that tell us that Jesus existed before He came to this earth. John 6, 38. Jesus said, For I come down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. So Jesus states Himself that He came down from heaven. Now, I know that people can go around and claim whatever they want to. But we know through studying the Scriptures that this is the case. This is a fact. Jesus also said in John 17, 5, and if you go read John 17, you'll see that that is a great long prayer that Jesus is praying there. Within that prayer, in verse 5, he says, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. There have been some, as I said, that teach that Christ did not exist until he was born. Well, Christ was born according to some uh, calculations around 4 B.C. Well, that's a long time after the world started. A long time. So Christ says that he was there in heaven. He was part of the Godhead. And we know the Godhead consists of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying that he had glory with Father before the world was. Showing that he left heaven. That he gave up that wonderful spot to come down. We know how hard it is to live day by day physically and also psychologically. It is difficult to live a human life. But Christ gave up all that he had to come down and live that way. And living in a time that was probably harder physically than it is now. We have a lot of modern conveniences today that help us in a lot of things. Remember back then, they didn't have all those things. So it was very tough physically. And yet he gave it all up to come to this earth to live as a human, and then die on the cross for our salvation. As the Hebrew writer says, that Christ came down, that God prepared a body for him. Why did God prepare a body for Christ? Because there's a difference between spirit and body. Spirit couldn't hang on the cross, so therefore body had to hang on the cross. God created that body for Christ, and Christ came to this earth and lived as a person to die for our sins. The Hebrew writers, trying to bring our minds into a point of understanding really what happened with Christ coming to this earth and the fact of his position. In Hebrews 2.9 he says, But we see Jesus who's made a little lower than the angels. Why? Why did Christ come to this earth? Why did he take on that position? Well, he goes on to say, For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. That is why he came. If you remember Christ praying in the garden, praying that the cup would pass from him, that God would take that cup from him. Why? Because Christ knew of the physical agony that he was going to face. I mean, how would we feel if we knew we were going to be crucified like that? How would we feel knowing that we were going to face that kind of pain? And he suffered humiliation, suffered pain before he even got to the cross. The scourging that he took would have opened up the skin of his flesh. And we know when that happens, there's fluid that comes out and they put a robe on him. And we know that clothing can stick to that. First of all, the scourging was bad and was terrible. And then to put cloth on him and then strip it away would be even more pain. So we see that Christ was one who suffered physically for us. Because he loved us. 
As we mentioned this morning in our class, we looked at Titus 2.11 and looked at the fact that the grace of God is a system. It's also the love of God, favor. It says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, showing that Christ has come into the world and that it is available. Salvation is available for all people. And yet it was because of God's love and Christ's love that that happened. So we have God, we have Jesus, although people deny sometimes both, and then sometimes just Jesus. And then there is the Holy Spirit. Some people have a misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit. They think it is some type of mystical force. We're all familiar. We all grew up in the age of Star Wars and the old famous line, May the force be with you. Some people look at the Holy Spirit as that type of force. The Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit as a person. He is not an it. He is not some type of mystical unknown force. He is not some type of force that comes on people to make them feel good. And oftentimes in religion you hear people say that. The the Spirit did something for them. It led them to do this and it led them to do that. We don't find that in the Scriptures, but we do find that the Holy Spirit was very instrumental in our salvation. When Jesus was talking with Nicodemus in John the third chapter, and discussing religious things. And Jesus told Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, we understand that. Well, what takes place? What do we need to do? What does being born again mean? Well, to the Christian world, it means different things. From just accepting Christ as uh, Lord and Savior and a personal Savior as to going through some steps or, or something like that. It means different things to the world. But it only means one thing in the Scriptures. And that's what God wanted it to mean. Be born of water and spirit. Not only is the spirit very instrumental in our salvation, he is instrumental in our ongoing understanding of God's word. Because after all, as Peter tells us in 2 Peter, the first chapter, verse 21, that the word of God came by those prophets that were guided by the Holy Spirit. Uh, as Paul says in Romans ten seventeen, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Well, what do we hear? What do we have? The Holy Spirit was instrumental in presenting God's word to man. We are very fortunate today to have written word. Of course, I am because <laughs> my memory is not so good sometimes. And oftentimes we go by memory, right? How many times have you heard someone say, well, the Bible says that money is the root of all evil. I learned that in Bible class. I remember reading that in Bible school. Well, is that what they really read? No. Because that's not what the Bible says. But what are they doing? They're going off memory. I'm sure when they read it the first time, they didn't read it, money is the root of all evil. I don't think they read it that way. But yet, over the years, you forget. They'll say, money is the root of all evil. But that's not what the Bible says. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. So it's hard for us to rely on our memory sometimes. That's why I'm so thankful God gave us a written word because I need it. I need something I can go to and learn and study. But we see the Holy Spirit bringing the word of God through the writers and that through what was written we can look at it and we can study it and we can know what the truth is and we can obey it. Not only do we learn from the word itself, but therefore when we render obedience to God, The Holy Spirit is also involved in that. 
in Second Peter 1.21, first of all, the Word being revealed. If you have your Bibles, look at Ephesians 2.18. Important thing here. And, and I have to admit, for a lot of people, the subject of the Holy Spirit is a very difficult subject. Uh, people are oftentimes saying how the Spirit guides them and leads them into different things. But we know that the Spirit does not guide us in the sense of taking us and leading us without our permission. He leads us through what has been written. Ephesians 2, 18, Paul says, For though, But through Him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Okay, we look at that. We have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, how that we're all baptized into one Spirit, one body. Baptized to enter into the body of Christ. The Spirit is there. He is helping us. And also in Romans 16, uh, excuse me, Romans 8 and verse 16. This is a very important passage because a lot of people misunderstand it. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, oftentimes, people think that because they believe that they're a child of God, what they taught, and I don't doubt people's sincerity, I don't. But the Spirit can only bear witness to our spirit when we have obeyed according to the Word. The Spirit is not going to bear witness to someone who is following error, who is uh, being incorrect in what they are believing for salvation. He is not going to bear witness with that. He cannot bear witness with error. He can only bear witness with truth. Therefore, Paul says that there is a way of truth. It's not left up to man's own interpretation. Paul is not saying that. He says here the fact that this Spirit, the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. How can we be the children of God if we're not obeying correctly? It is impossible. So therefore, the Spirit, when we have done that which is correct, bears witness with our spirit. So we have the Godhead, and without the Godhead, we have nothing. But all have contributed in their own way to our salvation. So what's the last part? The last part is man's part in his salvation. Some people say, well, man doesn't have any part in his salvation. The Bible says he does. So many verses, so many verses. Jesus talking about believing, he that believeth. Well, that means a person has to do something. A person has to believe. You know, Jesus said, except you believe that I am he, you should die in your sins, John 8, 24. Man has a part. That is the beginning part, point. And <clears throat> excuse me, in Romans 10, 17, once again, Paul says, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That is the beginning. So therefore, man has to have that faith, and without faith it is impossible to please God, Hebrews eleven six. Man has to have that faith, and it, faith, and it goes on from there. Well, is it a matter of just saying, well, I believe that God exists, I believe Christ died for my sins, and therefore I accept Christ and I am forgiven of my sins? It's not what the Bible teaches. I know people believe that. With all their heart they believe it. And they have been taught that. Unfortunately, that's not what the Bible teaches. We learn from the Scriptures that there are certain things that are involved in man's salvation. And we always give the plan of salvation at the end of sermons and lessons a lot of times. But yet, we, I think sometimes we need to focus in on each one of those a little more. You know, faith. How much faith do we have? Where is our faith? Is it proper faith? 
We talk about believing, hearing, believing, repenting, repentance. There are a lot of people who believe that you can come to God and accept God and still go out and live the way you've been living. They don't change their lifestyle. They don't change anything. They just say, I've been saved because Jesus Christ died for my sins, and I believe that, so therefore I don't have to repent. I had a man tell me one time that his sins were taken, up, taken care of at the cross. He says, I don't have to repent. My sins were taken care of at the cross. Well, the time that Christ lived, the Jews were the chosen people. And they thought just because they had the law of Moses, they had automatic salvation. They thought they were automatically going to go to heaven because they were God's children, the chosen ones. But Jesus said in Luke 3, uh, 13, 3 and 5, the fact that except they repented, they would perish. Because they thought they were better than other people. In that context there, he mentions the Galatians. And he mentions some people that were killed by the Tower of Siloam when it fell on. He says, basically, you think you're better than these people. He says, except you repent, you shall likewise perish. So people think that you don't have to repent. People don't think you have to uh, live a Christian life. They think that they can go on living as they do. But yet we're taught these things. Another thing man has to do is confess Christ. You know, we can confess Christ. In Romans 10, 9 and 10 talks about confessing Christ with the mouth. But we confess Christ in our daily lives, the way we live. You know, we're representatives of the body of Christ. So it's important that we represent the body of Christ properly. Yes, Jesus said that for those who confess him before mankind, he would confess them before the Father in heaven. But those that deny him before man, he would deny them before the Father. Now, a lot of people will take, say, well, see there, as long as I confess Christ, I'll be saved. As long as I believe, I'll be saved. And they try to separate them. But we find from the scriptures that they're all combined. In this morning in class, I used the example of a, the spokes in a wheel. They all have to be there. You cannot take certain spokes out and expect the wheel to work properly. Just the same with the gospel plan of salvation of uh, hearing, believing, repenting, confessing. And then the last one, which it, it still puzzles me why people put up such a fight about baptism. It's almost like they're, you know, they hate baptism for some reason. I just don't understand it. But man is commanded to be baptized. Uh, Jesus sent out the apostles. If you go back and read Matthew 28, verses 19, where he sends out the apostles. Uh, sends them into all the world. Why? To teach and to baptize. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why did he give that command if it wasn't important? Why would he even bother with it? I wouldn't bother with it. You know, when we tell people what to be saved, we don't tell them unnecessary stuff. At least I don't. But there was a reason. And when we read of the same account in Mark 16, where Jesus says, Go into, the world, preach, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Why? Why do that? He that believeth and is baptized. Why didn't Jesus say, He that repenteth? Or he that confesseth, although those have to be done, but he chose baptism. Why did he choose baptism? Out of all the things he could have said at that time, why did he choose that? Because it was important, it was necessary. So we see that these things are man's part. God has done his part in providing the way of salvation. Christ has provided his part 
in the plan of salvation. The Holy Spirit has done His part in providing the Word. Now it comes to man. So for those who say man has nothing to do with his own salvation are totally wrong. The Bible says he does. And I've mentioned these four or five things that have to take place in a person's life in order to be saved. Hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. Why? Because baptism takes away sin. I've often thought, and I've tried to ask people this, about baptism, they're against it. Show me in the Bible where it says that baptism does not save. It's not there. But I can show you where it says it does save. 1 Peter 3.21 Baptism doth also now save us. It either does or it doesn't. Peter was either truthful or he wasn't. There's no middle ground. Why did Ananias tell Paul to be baptized? He says, Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Because that's where your sins are washed away. But if a person doesn't uh, obey these other commands, then baptism does no good. These are the things that are necessary for man's salvation. If you're here this morning not having done these things, then you stand outside the body of Christ. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of us as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So you haven't put on Christ. You're not in the body of Christ. And if you haven't done that, you need to because your eternal salvation, your eternal destiny is at stake. And we encourage you to do that this morning. As a child of God, if your life has not reflected living as a Christian, if there's something that needs to be repented of in a public way, we encourage you to do that this morning. But whatever your need, we pray that you'll come as we stand and sing.